been a blessing, so thankful that God has provided for his people. That is what we see. God has provided for us today to be able to worship in all aspects, and what a wonderful thing. Uh, I would say, I would think if um, I'm going to give this analogy, something I had to kind of fight for the last two weeks as I was preparing, is that if we were a football team, we would be in trouble. I'm the third string, okay? <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt is out, Paul is out, and I'm here. Uh, but I had to keep telling myself that the success of today does not rest in me, but it rests in God, and I think I'm thankful for that. Uh, so I would have to say that if I was to summarize my teaching this morning, I would be saying I'm going to give you a Cliff Notes version on prayer. Now, we are going to examine the scriptures, and my goal is to help you grow in your confidence and comfortability in praying. Well, all right. Well, can you go ahead and advance the next slide for me then, Tom? <laughs> okay. All right. So... We were recently, recently at a restaurant, and this saying was over the table. Uh, please, Lord, let me prove to you that winning the lottery won't change me. All right, I think we can all agree that this is humorous, but if I'm being honest, I would say that this sums up a portion of my prayer life as a believer. If, I, if we would break down this saying, we would see a few things. One, the desire this individual has is not for God, but for worldly possession. Secondly, we see the desire is for God to be a genie and not our father. And third, we see someone who wants to be their own ruler and not submitted to the ruler of all. Again, all this seems to represent how my prayer life was for a part of my life as a believer. Uh, a patient of mine once told me that prayer is one of the most powerful weapons the believer has, but it's often the most underutilized. She's not wrong. We often diminish our privilege to have access to the throne of God, Ephesians 6.10 through 20 talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Um, the armor represents what we need to be armed with for spiritual battles. The Bible tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Ephesians, it states that part of the armor of, is the sword, seen in uh, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There is no doubt that we need to be knowledgeable with scripture so that we can fight Satan and his minions. When Christ was being tempted by Satan, he said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Christ himself, quoting scripture, of what Moses had said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, 3. There it says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. As we equip ourselves for spiritual battles by putting on the armor of God, we have to see where prayer comes in. Sorry, we're going to take a commercial break for a second. Yep. Thank you so much. That makes this so much better. Praise God. All right. <laughs> All right, so as we equip ourselves for spiritual battles by putting on the armor of God, we have to see where prayer comes in. You know, right after the list for the armor of God, Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Prayer is the means by which we draw spiritual strength from God. Without reliance on God, our efforts at spiritual warfare are empty and futile. So what is prayer? Prayer in its most basic definition is talking to God. 
Prayer is the opportunity to converse with the one who created all things, the one that created you. Prayer has no set posture. Uh, sit, stand, face down, eyes open or eyes closed. There's no set way to communicate, either silent or audible, by yourself or in a group. Prayer is direct access to God. Before, sinner, before sin entered into the world, uh, God communed with or walked with Adam and Eve. The first mention of prayer is actually in Genesis 4:26, says, "To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh." At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to pray. So I want us to take a look at this picture. Okay, uh, the meridian circumference of the Earth, that vertical line there, is 24,860 miles, and the equatorial or the horizontal line there is 24,901 miles in circumference. In 2020, the Earth's population was 7 billion, 794 million, 798, and 739 people. So we are looking at just one planet in our entire solar system. This does not include any of the other planets or galaxies. I look at this and I am in awe. That's kind of why I put the you are here part there. You know, I'm in awe. It is hard to feel big when you realize just how small you are. David had this same realization in Psalms 8, 3, and 4. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is my man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David didn't have a telescope. He didn't have NASA to show him images. He just looked up and was overwhelmed that amongst all of creation, he knew God cared for him. But this brings me to the first point on prayer and honestly, probably the most encouraging one. God hears our prayers. Psalm 50, 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 91, 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. In Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. May these verses encourage you to know that your prayers are being heard. You are praying to the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who upholds us with his righteous right hand. You are praying to the one who can do something with your request. In my studies, one thing I learned is that there are 650 recorded prayers in the Bible, and there are approximately 450 answers to those prayers. Now, our minds tend to focus on the fact that 200 prayers didn't get answered. The fact is that not all of our prayers will be answered, which is a hard truth to deal with. I know within this room, many of you have prayers that didn't get answered the way you wanted them to. This doesn't mean that God is not good. It doesn't mean that your prayer didn't get answered because of something you did. We might not ever know why our prayer wasn't answered, but I encourage you, do not lose heart. Call upon him, pour out your heart to him. He is good, even though there are times you may doubt that. I want us to take this thought of God hearing us a step further. Often a barrier to praying is the fact that we know who we are. We know that what we have done that day, that week, or maybe we've been out of fellowship with God longer, we feel that there is no way that we can come into the presence of a holy God. Then maybe we inaccurately, maybe we open up the Bible. We're like, this is some attempt to like kind of get us back on track. And we just do that kind of blind thing where you open it up. And, and maybe you come across a verse that you're already kind of in your wrong mindset. And you, you come across a verse that 
unfortunately, um, you read wrong because of kind of where your thought process. And maybe you come across Psalm 34, uh, 17 through 19, which says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of, out of them all. You read this verse, and you think, okay, I can associate with the brokenheartedness and the crushed in spirit, but I am not righteous. So God won't hear me and won't deliver me from my troubles. Well, you are right about one thing in your thinking. You are not righteous. You're not on your own. Let's go back to the message I talked in regards to salvation a few months ago. We discussed that the fact that we started out as being under condemnation. I'm going to continue on, then we'll, we'll get squared away here. We discussed the fact that, the fact that we um, started out as being under condemnation. We are declared guilty and will be serving a sentence. We examine the scriptures, and they are clear that we are guilty because we are sinners and that our sentence will be in the lake of fire, which is hell. We then looked at this verse, which answered how we could not be under condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ's death on the cross, he has conquered eternal death and separation from God. Placing our faith in Christ and him being our savior changes our position with God. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says this, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Justification is, not, is a not guilty verdict because we have been made righteous in the sight of God. We then uh, take it a step further. Why were we justified? We answered that question with the term imputation. Imputation means that our sin has been transferred to Christ and his righteousness has been transferred to us. If you remember the visual that we used that day, if you were here, uh, I actually exchanged suit coats with Sam. I took my suit coat and put it on him, and I took uh, the one that he had. And we were just trying to show how sin is being transferred to Christ and his righteousness to us. And then we also talked about a um, wonderful old hymn called His Robes for Mine. And in that it says, His Robes for Mine, O Wonderful Exchange, Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. So why does God hear your prayers? It's because of the righteousness of Christ. When you're feeling that you can't come into the presence of God because you aren't clean enough, know that it was never about you, and it's always been about what Christ has done for you, and that is the reason that you can go to the Father. Don't let Satan tell you any differently. Remember from earlier that if we are not in prayer, we are not utilizing the fuel that we need for our spiritual battles. Earlier, as we discussed, there are 650 recorded prayers in the Bible, and it's recorded that Jesus prayed 25 times. This brings us to the point of how often should we pray? We should have, be consistent in our prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Colossians 2.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Luke 18, 1, and he, being Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. 
A consistent prayer life is the opportunity to be in fellowship with the Father. The personal fellowship that Adam and Eve had seen, Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This in the presence of God relationship was damaged by sin, so our consistent prayer life is the opportunity to come as close as we can to that relationship. The good news is that our relationship with God will be restored to being that in-person relationship once Christ returns and we are in eternity. Not only are we to be consistent in our prayer life, but God encourages us to be persistent in our prayer life. In Luke 18, 1 through 8, Jesus tells us the parable of the persistent widow. She repetitively went to the unjust judge seeking justice against her adversary. Because of her persistence, the unjust judge gave her justice. Jesus continues to say in Luke 18, 6, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God, who is just, uh, give justice to his elect who cry to him, how often? Day and night. Will he delay long over them? The second parable Jesus uses to urge his disciples to be persistent in prayer is the story of the persistent uh, neighbor. The parable goes on as um, follows. Luke 11, 5 through 9. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. Now, I think we can all relate, right? You got your kids in bed. You do not want to get up, all right? You do not want to be bothered. <laughs> I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and it will be given to you. I, okay. Um, the neighbor did not get up because he was his friend. All right. That, that's, <laughs> this is really amazing because the scripture says he's not going to get up. He's his friend. He's not. He's not going to get up. So he didn't get up because he was his friend. But it says because of his impudence, he will give him whatever he needs. Impudence means boldness. His boldness is what caused him to get what he needed. We are urged to be bold later on in scripture as well. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, we are able to go boldly um, to the throne because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It is not based upon our own goodness. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Our boldness is coming to the throne of our boldness and coming to the throne of God must never be based upon some false sense of our self-righteousness, but should be marked by a true humbleness. A humbleness that it's truly aware that on our own ability, you could not enter into God's presence if it wasn't for what Christ has done for you. Here in a minute, we'll be looking at how we should pray. We're going to review a portion of scripture that is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is really a framework or a template on which we hang our prayers on, uh, prayers on, which is why it gets referred to as the model prayer. It helps us to be focused on God first and ourselves second. Often we have this order switched around in our prayer life. I do want to take a second before we get there to make one statement. Although I fully believe Christ gave us this model of prayer for us to know how to pray, I don't want you to leave here thinking that if you don't pray that way each and every time, then God is not going to hear you. Prayer is to be intentional, and I want us to make sure that we don't think that prayer is like a combination lock, and if I punch all these things in the right way and then something magical happens, and then God will hear uh, all my, or answer all my prayers. This is not how prayer works, and I don't want that message to come across this morning. We just read in the prayer of the tax collector, which was, God, be merciful to me. We see other uh, examples of short prayers in the Bible in Numbers uh, chapter 12, verse 13. And Moses cried to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. And that was about um, their sister who had leprosy. So that was, that was the prayer there. And then another verse to help us to understand that prayer is not some ritualistic chant is in uh, Matthew 14. To summarize that passage of scripture, Jesus is walking on the raging waters to reach the disciples' boat. And they were scared because they didn't know who it was that was coming towards them. And Jesus says, relax, it's just me. And that's kind of a summary. You're not going to find that in your Bible. Peter said, it is, if it is you, then command me to come out to you. And Christ said, come. Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water. And in verse 30, we find the shortest prayer in the New Testament. But when he, being Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid. And, be, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter did not have time to plug things into a certain algorithm. His prayer was straight to the point. Even more importantly, what we should be excited about in this passage is that we see that Christ answered his prayer. He didn't say, well, can you say some more nice things about me? Or, hey, you remember what you did yesterday? Go ahead and take care of that first, and then I'll make sure that you don't drown. And we are talking about Peter, and I know there's different levels of understanding of the Bible represented in this room, but Peter, Peter kind of <laughs> messes up along the way. So I'm, I'm going to probably say there's probably something in Peter's life that <laughs> he probably could have taken care of. So the fact that, you know, we, we see that God just straight up answered his prayer is, uh, is, should be an encouragement to us. Um, he just, you know, so he didn't require Peter to do all these things. He just graciously answered his prayer. And so I'm excited for us to kind of reach this point as kind of a long intro, but if there's one thing that took me a while to understand and feel comfortable with, it is prayer. After the Lord saved me and I started attending church, I would have to say that Wednesday night prayer services used to get my anxiety up. And honestly, still to this day at times, I still have to fight that. Like that lingering feel from 20 some years ago still kind of finds its way to work itself up in me. I felt so inadequate to pray with people. The thought of praying out loud with others frightened me. Frightened me. I'd be at church and we'd be in a group and I would be thinking, man, these, these people I'm with, they are seasoned believers and they sound so fluid praying and they know scripture and they pray scripture. And here I am stuttering and stammering my way through a quick prayer, just like I am right now. 
Um, I understand now that my problem then was that I really didn't understand prayer. And as we have already discussed, I was wrong to think that any successful outcomes or answers to prayer were based upon how good I sounded. Similarly, Paul addresses this actually in regards to preaching. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, it says, And I, when I came to you, and this is about Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If there is a person in the New Testament that could have spoken in a manner that would have shown his knowledge, it would be Paul. But the last verse tells us that Paul wanted to make sure that people's faith rested in God and not in the wisdom of man. And also in Matthew 6, 7, Jesus is speaking. He's saying, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So if you're like me and you're intimidated by those who sound so good when they pray, let me urge you not to worry about it. Prayer is about your heart, not about eloquent speech or phrases. As I said at the beginning, my goal is that you leave here encouraged, and I think that this next point will do that. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels, meaning that many of the same stories are repeated in the books, but all are seen, and they're all seen kind of in a common view, but just, just kind of recorded just maybe slightly different depending on, on the author and how things were seen and how the Spirit worked. So it is easy when reading the Gospels, you think that you were reading the same story but in a different take on it versus realizing that there are actually two stories that have happened at different times. And we see that with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is recorded in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and that actually happened in Galilee. And in Luke, it is recorded in chapter 11, 1 through 4, and that occurs in Judea. I bring this up because who had the opportunity to physically be in the presence of Christ? His disciples did. So they walked with him, they heard his teachings, they saw miracles, and they heard him pray. So the fact that even with all that, they requested help with praying, why should we be shocked that we would need help as well? So let's look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. Uh, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We will start with focusing on how the prayer opens. Our Father, Galatians 4, 7 states, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As we discussed earlier, that because of Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. Some people may struggle with this term father because most people didn't grow up with a father who is gentle but firm, loving, long-suffering, and gracious. So often we want to take our earthly relationship with our father and we want to transfer that into our relationship with God, and we can't do that. The Bible describes our heavenly father in a whole different way. We see his love in the parable of the prodigal son. 
in the parable, the son wanted his portion uh, now, basically, so that he could go and do whatever he wanted with it. It didn't take long for him to spend it, spend it all, and he ended up working to take care of pigs and wanted to eat as they were eating. He decided that he would go back and ask to be treated like one of his father's hired servants. And we'll pick up the story in Luke 15, 20. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. One more verse to help us to understand our heavenly father better is Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This father is the one that you are entering fellowship with. In fact, father in the original language actually translates to daddy or papa. This is a term of tender affection, and it actually takes away the fear of approaching him. Romans 8, 15. Oh, okay. Uh, says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. As we enter into prayer with our daddy, we are quickly taken to whom we are conversing with when we read, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be holy or honored above all things. We are entering into the pre holy presence of God. We get to enter into the holy of holies. We don't need to have a priest go in on our behalf because Christ's death took care of that for us. Hebrews 6.19 says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The next part of the prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. We are desiring that much be made of Christ. We want to move away from the evil of this world, and we're asking the Spirit to give us God's desires. We are asking for God to do what brings him glory through the advancement of the gospel and through salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and coming to the knowledge of truth. We are not on this earth for our glory, but for God's glory. The next part of the prayer focuses on reminding us what the will of God is, as it states, as it is in heaven. For us to truly know that what we're asking God to do on this earth, we really need to know what is going on in heaven. God is being exalted, there's worship of Christ, and holiness is the dominant theme. So this is what we're praying for on earth. We're asking God's heavenly kingdom to come down. For that to happen, really we're actually praying and asking for the return 
of Christ. I think this is a great reminder that this world is not our home and that we're just awaiting a far better place. We move on to making requests be known to God as we come across verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. As we see here, we're asking the Lord for our needs. We're asking for our basic needs to be met. We do know that the Lord will meet those needs. Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after the, all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We're not asking for long-term comfort as they may drift us from the Lord by trusting in our possessions and not in him. Very much like the opening slide of the lottery there. Um, James 4, 2 through 4. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on what? Your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This does not mean that we cannot ask God for our needs or even our wants, but what we need to be fully aware of is what is our motive for obtaining what we're asking for. Is it for our kingdom or for the kingdom of God? Ultimately, we can ask God for anything, but he's the one who reserves the right to do what is best for us. We return back to a spiritual focus as we read, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This portion of scripture sounds as if our forgiveness from God is based upon our forgiveness of others. The Bible is very clear in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing additional to this verse. It does not say, I will forgive you if you do this or that. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Nothing added. So if we cannot add anything in order for us to be saved, then we cannot add anything in order for us to be forgiven. What this does cause us to do is evaluate ourselves and our relationship with those around us. Holding on to a grudge does nothing to help us to grow spiritually. We're often fine with us doing wrong towards God, but are highly offended when someone does wrong towards us. We are forgiving of or easily make excuses for ourselves, but don't want to show that same grace to others. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 says, Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We need to be in continual evaluation of our own spiritual condition. How have I sinned personally? How have I sinned against others? And how have others sinned against me that I need to forgive them? Finally, we have the last request. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. We're going right to James chapter 1 to help us navigate this quickly. James 1, 
13 through 15 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I think it's very important that we kind of clear that up. Um, this quickly takes our mind out of any thought that God tempts us. That job goes solely to the father of lies, which is Satan himself. In Job chapter 1, Satan is given permission to test Job. God gives Satan permission to test him. And he takes Job's property, and all of his children die. And in Job 1.22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, Satan attacks Job's health. And in Job 2.10, it says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We see that Satan tempted Christ in Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 4, 5, then the devil took him to the holy city. And then 4, 8, and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. These three temptations fall into three categories that are common still today. The first temptation concerns the lust of the flesh to satisfy uh, his hunger, in this example with Christ. The second temptation concerns the pride of life, love for this world. And the third temptation concerns the lust of the eye, sinful desire to have what we see or those things that have visual appeal. These temptations are common to each one of us still today. And our Lord dismantled the temptation through scripture. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We can be delivered from evil because Christ has overcome death and sin. At the beginning of the message, we stated that originally there was not prayer because Adam and Eve had communed with God. Then sin occurred and separation from God happened. Prayer has been in place ever since, and one day we will be back in the presence of God in eternity and will commune with God once again. So one thing I love about being asked to preach is the fact that it really makes you dig much deeper than what you normally would. So uh, this is something that I had totally have glanced over and um, missed, and I hope it is as much of an encouragement to you as it was for me when uh, coming across it. So currently, are our prayers doing anything for eternity? Revelation 5.8. And when he, the lamb, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of what? Incense, which is what? Which are the prayers of the saints. Romans, or I mean, Revelation 8, 3 through 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire and from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. How amazing is this? 
we are commanded to pray for Christ's return, and those very same prayers are gathered in a bowl and eventually poured out on the earth to initiate Christ's return. If that does not motivate you to up your prayer life, I'm not sure what more will. Summarizing our uh, message this morning, we can take heart in the fact that God hears our prayers. He hears them because Christ's death on the cross has restored our fellowship with God. We need to be consistent and persistent in our prayer life. We do not have to be eloquent in our speech. God desires to hear what is on your heart. Prayer is an opportunity to talk to our Papa. Our Papa is the creator of all things and is to be revered as holy. Our prayers need to be centered around his will being done on earth and that his kingdom will soon return to earth. We put our personal requests before him and we need to evaluate our heart and confess any sin that we have. Lastly, we learn that our prayers are being collected in heaven and are pleasing incense to God and that our prayers will be poured out on the earth initiating Christ's return. The Lord's Prayer is a great framework to lay out our prayers. Most of the Lord's Prayer is spiritual-based and very little emphasis on our own desires. As you continue to develop the ability to pray using the template, I wanted to leave you today with something that can help you get started right away. I want to share an acrostic from R.C. Sproul. On the paper, you will see the term ACTS. It stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. So I just thought it would be helpful to leave today and something to kind of help guide you as you continue to work on your prayer life. So adoration. Um, praise God for who he is. Psalm 48.1 reads, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So what is it that puts you in amazement of who God is? You could focus on an attribute of, an attribute of God that means a lot to you right now. I would encourage you to look up those attributes for God, of God and praise him for who he is. Then we come to the C portion, confession. Confess your sins to God. Where have you failed in your relationship with him? Do you need to ask someone for forgiveness? Do you need to uh, forgive someone? 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then we go into the T, thanksgiving. Thank God for what he has done in your life. What prayers has he answered in the past? Thank him for his grace, his mercy, your salvation. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Supplication. This is finally got to your request portion. Request God's help for yourself and others, which is what, why we have that time of prayer as a church family, so we can understand how who we can be lifting up in prayer and what needs are going on. So what, what requests do you have for yourself or for another? Spiritual, physical, emotional, whatever they are. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for the return of Christ. And the verse that helps us there is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what I want to do now, and I fully believe that it would be bad of us to just walk out of here, to like take this information, take what you have in your hand, and just leave and maybe say, oh, that was nice, thanks. No, we need to put that in practice. So I do want to take five minutes and we'll just sit here in silence. 
and just pray your heart out to God. If you want to try to go through on the back of that page of the Acts, if I kind of did a summary of the message, you can try to pray through the Lord's Prayer. If you want to use the Acts portion to do it, do it. But just take five minutes and just give to God what's on your heart. Uh, I'll come back up and I will close this in prayer and then Jeff will close this out with our last song and then we'll be dismissed, okay? Thankful that it's not dependent upon me, but it's dependent upon your spirit working in the lives of those who are here and who will be in the future listening. Pray, God, that they would be encouraged to come to you, Lord, that you are our daddy, our papa, that takes away the, the fear of approaching. And I pray that our prayer life would be strengthened for um, your glory and that we would strengthen our fellowship with you. We're thankful, Lord, that those prayers are being collected and that one day Christ will return. Thank you for providing for your church today, for Jeff and his family being here and, and willing to serve the extended family of Christ. Thank you for that. What a blessing it has been. Pray for the requests that we had. Lord, there were many. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in each one of them. And I pray for Norma's family member who I found out they have kidney cancer. God, I just pray for healing for them as well. Pray that you would give safety for the harmlessness as, uh, as the family travels back. And we pray for Sam and baby God that you would be first in their life, Lord, that you would protect their marriage, that um, Satan would not get a foothold there. God, I know there's a lot of people who are hurting for different reasons, different things going on. And Lord, all I do know is that you are sufficient for all things. So pray that as Jeff closes us out, that our hearts and minds would be focused upon you and that we would lift high the name of Jesus. And we pray this in your name.